So welcome everybody. I'm Tom Miller. I'm the editor of SolarView Magazine and marketing director here at Baywa RE Solar Systems. This is our fifth town hall since the COVID crisis began. We're glad you could join us again or for the first time. And for Earth Day, we're doing something slightly different uh, in terms of the format uh, than our usual town hall. This week, we're going to have three different conversations with three very special guests. Uh, we have Dr. Charlie Gay. His credentials are extensive. He's uh, on the external advisory board at Cindy and National Laboratories. He's also the former director of the U.S. Department of Energy, Solar Energy Technology Office. Uh, he's the former director of NREL and serves on the board of SolPad, to name a few of his past and current activities. Charlie's very plugged into the renewable energy world and has been for the last 50 years. And he'll be sharing his thoughts on where we're at with the crisis now and what challenges and opportunities lay ahead. Then we'll kick it over to Marla Corper. She's Development Director at Solar Energy International, or, at, or SEI. Uh, and Marla's going to share SEI's big audacious goal uh, to train uh, a large portion of the global solar workforce coming up in the future. Uh, and then to close us out, we're going to turn to writer, author, and consultant, and Baywa buddy, Hirsch Wilson, he's going to talk with us about resilience, leadership, and what it takes to thrive in tough times. So I want to thank all of our guests in advance for joining us on Earth Day and talking with us. And thank you all for being here. Uh, we really want to try to build community with these uh, town halls to help provide valuable information and to know that Baywa is here for you. We want to hear what your needs are. So let's continue these the conversations and collaborations. Um, so a lot of us are facing huge challenges in our lives and businesses right now. So we're trying to bring a mix of future forward thinking to the town hall today, but also acknowledge the challenges and opportunities at this moment. Um, and to talk about some of the skills we can all work on to build resilience and continue to thrive and do good work in the world. So. Uh, before we get to our guests, um, first guest, Charlie Gay, I'd like to turn it over to Boaz Soifer to say a few words, and he's going to share some slides. Um, and again, if you have questions for our guests, please drop them in the chat window, and you can also tweet your questions to hashtag SolarTownHall. So without further ado, uh, let's go to Boaz, and thanks, as always, for joining us. Thank you, Tom, um, and thank you, everybody, for being here Again, it's an honor to be here together. Um, I'm not usually a big Earth Day celebrator. I, I, I kind of think every day is Earth Day, but this year it seems like it's worth um, putting a stamp on. So I thought I'd put a couple of slides together um, to kind of share what um, some of the environmental impacts of the COVID crisis have been and one of the things we've been talking about a lot internally is how um, this situation is a growth engine, the, the COVID situation, and how we connect with each other is changing, how we create value in our networks and with our customers is changing. Um, and also personally, um, each of us is dealing with how the world around us feels fundamentally different than it did before. And we don't know what the world is going to feel like in a few months. Um, and that causes, of course, all kinds of anxiety, um, but all of that is fuel for growth because growth is um, in large part about letting go of the beliefs that no longer serve us. 
So I think to commemorate Earth Day, um, I think looking at, at how our changed behavior is already impacting our environment and even our ability to connect with our environment, um, that it, today's a, a good day for that. So everything that I'm gonna share is, is available online and you've probably already seen it, but I thought it was cool to see it all in one place. Um, so, so these are images of Italy um, from January of this year and then March of this year um, showing nitrogen dioxide um, accumulations in the atmosphere. And obviously from left to right, you can see a huge reduction in those. And, and I'm not a scientist. Um, Charlie might correct uh, a lot of my assumptions about these slides. I'm sure weather impacts them and, and all kinds of other factors. But primarily we're looking at reduced pollution from just having fewer cars on the road. Um, these are plots of um, nitrous, uh, nitrogen dioxide emissions in London, Amsterdam, Brussels, and Paris also, and you can see the decline. Um, and and these, these charts are all from January 1st to the present. Um, in the bottom right, uh, same, same content, nitrogen dioxide reduction um, in France from January to March. And a really cool headline I saw in Time Magazine yesterday is that because of the reduced pollution, especially particulates, um, we're seeing higher than ever solar production. Um, so, so there's an added benefit there that I wouldn't have thought of. Uh, this is mainland China. Um, again, nitrogen dioxide concentrations um, comparing 2019 to 2020. Pretty amazing photo. And uh, in, the, in the Wuhan area, the, the top shows before and after Chinese New Year, again, nitrogen dioxide concentrations. And you see there's a reduction during the Chinese New Year and then an expansion of um, uh, NO2 in the atmosphere after Chinese New Year. Um, but in 2020, there's no rebound of those emissions. Similar stuff, New York, LA, and Seattle, um, comparing uh, the same period of time, March 1 to March 19th, year over year. Again, dramatic reductions um, in nitrogen dioxide. And this compares the 2015 to 2019 average for the um, New York area, right? The Eastern seaboard, really everything from um, Maryland through um, uh, Massachusetts. Dramatic reduction again. Um, and uh, of course, we're, we're hearing about this from people that live in these areas as well. Uh, this is the United States overall for a 12-day period comparing year over year. Pretty cool. Um, a before and after shot of LA, uh, and, and I'd love for Charlie to verify this since he lives in LA. Um, I'm sure some of this is weather related, but still what a dramatic difference um, from uh, before the coronavirus to after. These shots are from India. Um, I thought these were pretty cool before and after shots. 
And one amazing thing that we're seeing all over the world is mountains. Um, in the bottom left, you have the San Gabriel Mountains seen from LA. Um, in the middle, Mount Kenya, which apparently hadn't been seen um, from the city on, you know, in, in 30 years or something like that. And on the right side, the Himalayas are visible um, from parts of Punjab where they haven't been seen for 30 or 40 years. And I, I imagine it must be incredible. I mean, living here in Santa Fe, we see the mountains every day, uh, but I, I can imagine how incredible it must be to wake up one morning and see these mountains for the first time. Um, that um, is inspiring. And you've all heard about the canals in Venice. This is what they looked like before COVID, gray, murky. And now not only are they clear, but dolphins are swimming around in them and white swans have returned and schools of fish are visible. And in Yosemite National Park, and I'm sure in all the parks um, that normally would be open this time of year and aren't, um, wildlife is reclaiming. Um, bears, coyotes, bobcats, deer, um, all kinds of creatures. Um, so I'm inspired by this. And I, I just want to reiterate that since the COVID environment presents us with an opportunity for growth, I want to ask of myself and, and encourage you to ask of yourselves, what beliefs that no longer serve us are we ready to release as individuals, as organizations, and as a society? Um, we can have something more like this if we choose it. And uh, I want dolphins. I want dolphins um, in, in my life as much as possible. And I'm sure you guys do too. So um, that's it for me. Thank you. Thanks, Buzz. So I think the, the air pollution topic is a really interesting one. Boaz spoke about it from more of like the let's think about where we are on earth and what it means to be participating in the natural environment and what that means for us. But also science is taking an opportunity here while the earth is allowed to breathe for a moment um, and air quality experts are looking at what is happening in this space where there's so much less pollution. Um, low, low pollution uh, is an anomaly in many parts of the world, as Boaz pointed out. So there's this huge natural experiment going on that science can look at. And there's some very nuanced da uh, data gathering happening right now that can inform robust policy decisions coming out of the crisis. Um, a few other air quality points that I've read about lately that are interesting and some are concerning. Um, China, after a quick drop in auto sales, um, is seeing those sales dramatically increase again uh, because people are afraid to ride on buses or take public transit because of potential uh, viral outbreaks again. So there's an interesting conversation there. Um, you know, there's another conversation around indoor versus outdoor air pollution. Uh, we often don't think about it, but indoor air quality can sometimes be worse than outdoor air quality because of uh, what we cook, uh, poor ventilation, cleaning products, those kinds of things. So there's a whole range of potential pollutants that can, in our homes, that can lead to these respiratory issues, uh, heart disease, cancer. So what are the health implications of making everyone stay at home 
versus working outside or being in an office. Often an office has much better air quality than our home. So there are conversations there to be have to have as well moving forward. Um, all that to say, I don't want to bring a negative spin on what the, the positive things that Boaz shared. Um, many folks out there are trying to find out what lessons we can take from this moment and how we can come out stronger before. And so that's where I'm hoping to get to in our conversation today. So to bring it back to Earth Day uh, and the program, let's move to our first guest, Charlie Gay. Um, good morning, Charlie. Thank you so much for joining us. And um, I want to talk about the clean tech conference that you attended. Um, but first, you shared with us something while we were chatting before about air quality and your family's farm in California. Can you share that with us really quickly and about seeing the mountains? Uh, good morning. Uh, thank you very much for inviting me. I'm uh, delighted to be here, especially here on Earth Day. Um, the uh, farm I grew up on was started my, by my great-grandfather, who actually came to, the, uh, came to California from Hawaii. My grandfather and great-grandfather were born on a little island called Niihau, out at the end of the, what was then called the Sandwich Islands, and uh, started a farm um, in Redlands, which is about 80 miles east of Los Angeles. And uh, first, uh, naval oranges came to California from Brazil in about 1892. So the citrus industry was a large part of my background and each year you could track how many oranges were harvested uh, on our land. And beginning around the 1930s, my dad started to keep a, a record of uh, just how much productivity the trees had um, tied to how far he could see, uh, which mountains he could see in the distance. There were a series of, of peaks, not unlike the uh, image Boaz showed of uh, snow-capped San Gabriel Mountains, uh, which aren't too far from uh, where I grew up. And by the 1960s, the same uh, trees were uh, maybe 40 percent less productive than they had been in the 40s. And uh, orange trees don't age all that much. So the, the strongest link there was to the enormous amount of air pollution that and smog that enveloped LA and moved basically from morning to evening from the Long Beach refinery areas across San Bernardino to Palm Springs to um, Coachella, which everybody now knows where Coachella is that <laughs> didn't know when I was growing up. Uh, so it, it, I went to school in Riverside, which was uh, one of those places affected strongly by air pollution. There were days we couldn't see uh, a mountain uh, that was only half a mile away from campus. So the uh, shift that started happening in air quality actually came after the first Earth Day 50 years ago. Um, Nixon created the Environmental Protection Agency, a lot of rules about leaded gas, lead in gasoline, um, the, a lot of the environmental protection quality um, uh, agencies that were created came out shortly after that first Earth Day. Um, might be hard pressed to say it was a direct cause and effect, but everybody became far more aware 
of yeah. the environment and the um, issues that were being created by um, just uh, using the air as a dump for <laughs> the pollutants created, whether burning uh, fossil fuels or uh, what was being thrown in the in the rivers and the uh, ocean. Yeah, and I want to come back to that first Earth Day uh, 50 years ago, but let's talk a little bit about um, where we're at now in your vision of this moment. What are you seeing um, as some of the outcomes from this COVID crisis? And maybe I'll actually, you just attended a clean tech conference. I, I thought maybe we'd start by asking you a few of your top takeaways from that event. Yeah, this is a, um, a week-long e-convention, it's called. It's a global clean tech e-convention that starts um, at around midnight um, New Mexico time in Australia, beginning of the day in Australia, and winds its way across um, uh, Asia, Europe, Africa, Middle East, uh, coming to the States uh, around uh, seven o'clock in the morning here in LA. And uh, participants from uh, each of the uh, those areas are on calls. The Monday call was around what what's happening in the marketplace. Today is uh, devoted largely to um, links back to Earth Day. Tomorrow is for startups uh, around the world, entrepreneurs who have business ideas, and how are they going to be able to find the financing for their work? And Friday is a uh, follow-up in the native languages of a number of countries, people talking about what uh, actions they can take. Mm -hmm. The first thing that struck me uh, was um, a, a looking for a unifying theme in our very increasingly polarized world. Um, and uh, that theme to me was energy security, that, uh, no matter what political background, uh, what um, uh, particular priorities you may have, energy security resonated with every stakeholder. And uh, a lot of the thought that I've had around how, uh, it, for me, 2030 has become the, uh, the new 2050. Most people have talked about what do we need to do by 2050 in order to uh, uh, help with the large populations that we have? Uh, you know, how do we put in place things related to climate? A, uh, a thread that's woven through the fabric of almost all of the conversations has been we need to accelerate what we're doing. That it's the ability to bring clean energy technologies to the market, to the real world, uh, isn't a technology question anymore. It's a development question. It's not how do you do it, it's how fast can we make those changes. Um, Boaz may get to see dolphins in Santa Fe if the ice keeps melting in <laughs> Greenland and Antarctica. <laughs> so be careful what you wish for. Um, the the broad brush themes here, I'm looking for some common ground. Uh, a lot of the opportunity coming out of this it is, for me, it's a, a moment where you can react by freezing in the headlights, waiting to see what happens or you can take action 
because everybody is frozen in the headlights. So I think there's a great opportunity here for us to seize this moment and run with it. Okay. Um, I'd like to talk a little bit about uh, resilience. You and I were talking on uh, over the weekend, and you resilience came up in your mind as a really big factor moving forward, uh, especially in terms of how solar contractors might differentiate themselves uh, when cybersecurity are growing concerns with Internet of Things. Uh, can you weigh in and give us your take on that? Sure. Um, Prior, I retired from the DOE uh, in November and uh, was there in the solar office for three years. Most of that time, um, the historical, the Department of Energy uh, was started in 1977. It came out of the old Atomic Energy Commission. And when the DOE started, was heavily focused on labs. There are 17 national labs that we inherited from the World War II time. Using those labs to develop science and a lot of that science to develop the technologies that are uh, commercial or about to be commercialized today. The infrastructure that we have is also um, aging. It's 50, 60, 70 years old. It was 110 years ago that the first uh, grid system in uh, New York uh, got its legs and it was a, established as a monopoly that uh, aggregated enough customers that could justify building a coal burning power plant to serve those customers. Now we have technologies that allow customers to become self-reliant. And uh, part of being resilient is how do you break up a lot of big pieces into smaller pieces that can stand on their own? Don't depend on uh, having a centralized backbone, uh, much as we don't depend on Ma Bell for our telephones anymore. That competition, as well as uh, disaggregating those pieces to become more self-reliant, uh, sort of Gandhi-like self-reliant with the uh, images that uh, uh, Boaz showed from India. Uh, becoming self-reliant for him meant um, weaving your own thread to, uh, uh, forming your own thread, uh, spinning your own thread into, um, uh, putting it into uh, fabric, uh, make your own clothes. We don't have to go that far back, but we can become more self-reliant. And as we become more self-reliant, the uh, ability to take solar plus storage and the fastest change in technology today is the speed of cost reduction and storage that we can take advantage of. So our homeowners can be increasingly self-reliant with their own generation and storage. Some of the um, folks that I work with in Italy uh, have developed tools that allow homes to share electricity in the neighborhood, uh, allow um, apartment complexes to uh, own and distribute energy throughout the complex, that multi-user um, buildings um, can become self-reliant. And those islands can connect together in a reforming a grid 
because we have data. We have high-speed communications now that are ubiquitous that are allowing us to have this Zoom conference. And that ability to access data means that we can uh, stand alone, we can stand together, but each individual can become more self-reliant here. Great. So we're running out of time for our conversation, um, but I really thank you for joining us today. And if we have time at the end, we'll, we'll throw you a few questions from the audience. Thanks so much, Charlie. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So I'd like to bring up uh, our next guest. Uh, her name is Marla Corper. And Marla is the Development Director at Solar Energy International, or SEI. And Marla attended this year's Business Leadership Summit. Um, and that was the first time that I learned about uh, SEI and their big audacious goal, which we'll get into a little bit. Um, thanks for coming on the show today, Marla. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me. So Hirsch Wilson at the end of the program is going to talk about optimism and the power of optimism. Uh, we will come out of this crisis. Um, solar and renewables are going to be a huge part of the energy landscape. That seems to be the current thinking. Um, but there's also that looming challenge uh, that we're going to be facing coming out of this current crisis, and that's climate change. Uh, and we're going to have to contend with that. And with what Marla is going to present today, we see real points of optimism um, in that nexus of solar demand, which we know is coming, job training, um, building a global solar workforce um, at a scale that's going to be needed to help meet our carbon emissions goals, meet our 2050 goals, and to create all the new energy, um, renewable energy jobs that we're going to need in the coming economy. Um, so. You're an engineer uh, and you got your start in oil and gas, right? Why, why did you move from that industry and make that switch to solar? Sure. So I started working in the oil and gas industry right out of college. And pretty quickly in my time there, I realized I needed to take off my rose tinted glasses and see that if I wanted to have work that aligned with my personal values that I needed to make a change because it wouldn't be in that industry. Uh -huh. So solar was this really exciting and obvious transition because it allowed me to stay in the energy sector, which I find really fascinating, but it took my work life and my personal life and it put it in balance, which is really important for me. Right. Um, talk, to, talk to us a few minutes about uh, SEI. Um, what, what's the capsule? What do you guys do? Definitely. So Solar Energy International or SEI is a global solar training organization we got our start back in 1991. So if you can go back in time, imagine we were training about 25 people a year on how to install really small off-grid systems. Mm -hmm. So now let's fast forward to today. Nearly 30 years later, we've trained over 76,000 people. Mm -hmm. And our alumni have been involved with over 10% of the world's solar installations. So we are really proud of the growth that our organization has had over the last 30 years, um, both in numbers of folks that have been trained and physically. We have locations in three continents across the world and alumni from 145 countries. Right. So that's 76,000 people. You work globally. I'm wondering how has the COVID crisis affected your, your operations, your nonprofit right now? Definitely. So 
Our in-person training is at a stop until July, and that's at all of our locations across the globe, and it's likely that that could be further impacted. Mm-hmm. But the incredible opportunity that we have as trainers is working with folks online. So we are really focused with our online training right now. We have nine courses running in April, seven that are in English and two that are in Spanish. Every single course that we offered exceeded our enrollment capacity. So right now we are operating at 156% of our expectation for April. Right. And I think that's really interesting because as we talk about as an industry needing to make these transitions to more online services, uh, online trainings, I think um, that's a really important avenue for people to take advantage and become trained in the solar workforce. So um, do you have data around how many of your trainees go on to have solar jobs and do you, can you share with us where were we at uh, in the solar jobs landscape pre-COVID? Uh, were we training enough solar workers to meet the demand? Definitely. I think we should start with looking at the overall picture and then I'll break it down. Okay. So SEI trains about 7,000 people a year. About half of those folks are already in the industry. So that leaves us with around 3,500 trainees that are being prepared to enter the solar workforce each year. Of that demographic, about 80% of our alumni go on to work either in the solar industry or in ancillary career tracks. So an example of that could be an electrician who adds solar as one of their offerings to their customers. So that puts us at 2,800 folks that SEI is training for the global solar energy workforce each year. So the answer is no, we are not training nearly as many people as are needed for demand. And I think that's a really important distinction to make because I think something that we all share in the industry is an acknowledgement that it's difficult to hire skilled workers in this workforce. So we already are having this gap. And as we start to think about growth in the next five, 10, 30 years, that gap will continue to widen unless we're really intentional about closing it. And that's where SEI comes in. Okay. Um, let's shift the conversation in terms of, and, and think about where we need to go for global PV. Um, and I think you, we could share a first slide. Um, and this is around the ARENA report and how SEI is thinking about what needs to happen to meet the global demand. Can you, um, oh, I need to sh- actually share my screen. That would help. Um, can you walk us through this slide um, and frame it out for us? Definitely. So, okay. So, I think we'll start with the IPCC report. In 2018, the IPCC put out a report of what we, what it's going to look like in terms of responding to catastrophic climate change, otherwise stated as staying below two degrees Celsius. And one of the projections that they put out there is that our electricity worldwide needs to be produced by 70 to 85% renewables in order to stay below catastrophic warming. And what that report did was it gave the information needed to organizations across the world to start saying, okay, so these are the parameters we're working in. What does a plan of action look like to be able to respond and be a part of the solution. So IRENA was one of those organizations that looked towards what a roadmap could look like. And specifically they created a roadmap to 2050 
looking at creating 85% of our electricity from renewables by 2050. And what that gave SEI and the industry as a whole is this incredible resource where we can distill what does solar PV look like in that broader equation. So looking at that report, you can find that the PV industry will make up about 40% of the renewable energy resources needed by 2050. So I think we should pause there because that's really significant. We could be, we can and will be working towards nearly half of that portfolio. So we will be making a significant impact towards fighting climate change if we move in that direction. Right. Um, so I probably should share my screen again because let's talk about um, where SEI is going to go. Or maybe before we share the slide, take me through, you're at 76,000 uh, solar workers trained in the last, since 1991. What is your 10-year goal? How many solar workers do you want to train in the next 10 years? Definitely. And maybe, do you mind if I start at five because that's our first goal and then I'll work through the milestones. Yeah. So looking towards 2025, our first milestone is to train 272,500 people for the solar workforce. And that's compared to 76,000 today. So we need to acknowledge that is big and transformational growth for us. That's going from training 7,000 to 15 to 25,000 to 100,000 people in five years. So that is where we will start. And that will be looking towards this broader landscape of global job growth and training that accompanies it. Right. So you want to scale up from 76,000 to three quarters of a million. Um, that, sounds, that sounds pretty easy. Um, let's share um, the screen again and walk me through the next stage of that. What, is, um, what, what are we seeing here? Sure. So this slide here, it's taking data from the IRENA report. So essentially, let's start with today. Today we have 3.6 million solar workers worldwide. Mm -hmm. By 2030, so the next 10 years, we're going to need 8.5 million workers in order to be on track with this 85% goal. And then take that to 2050, we need 11.9 million solar workers to meaningfully address climate change. So that is three times more solar workers than we have today. So when I look at this, our takeaway is there is a huge opportunity and there's a need to be very intentional about how we are training and creating pathways to jobs in the solar industry right now. So we are ready for 2030 and 2050. Right, so we have that demand, uh, that need of almost 12 million solar workers in the next five years, you want to train three quarters of a million. What, what's the next milestone for you? So five years, it's going to be 272. Looking at 10 years, it will be training nearly a million people. And then looking at 30 years, 2050, it will be training 4 million people, or that is 30% of the global solar energy workforce. Right. Um, and I will share my screen one last time, uh, and we can look at those numbers together because you have a chart here that is pretty remarkable. Um, can, you, can you walk us through this chart here? Sure, so the chart that Tom is sharing with everyone is looking at 
sorry, I just need to get this open here. It's looking at what SEI's growth would look like if we did business as usual compared to if we trained different percentages or fractions of the global solar workforce in the next 30 years. And I think maybe the first thing we should acknowledge is if you're looking at this top red line, it's quite shocking and it, it should be. And we recognize that we cannot train the global solar energy workforce alone, nor should we. So this will not be where SEI is working, this red line that is the very top line of the graph. But what this does tell us is how we can make goals and intentionally grow so that we are having a significant contribution to growing this workforce. So a few lines I'll point out for context. The very bottom line, it turns into a blue line and curves up a little bit. That is what SEI would look like if we continued growing business as usual. So incremental growth over the next 30 years, similar to what we did in the last 30. And what that would do was would put us at about 700,000 folks trained for the global solar energy workforce. And frankly, that would not be a significant contribution to addressing the scale of the issue that is at hand. Right. So when I first saw these numbers um, at, the, at our business leadership summit, I was really shocked. Um, and I thought, you know, that's, those numbers are astonishing, exciting, and how on earth are they going to do that? How do you scale up that kind of training to, to three quarters of a million, I'm sorry, to 250,000 in the next five years, let alone to four million? How does that work? <laughs> I have to laugh because we're asking the same question, of course, within our organization. Uh -huh. And it really starts with that five-year milestone of training 272,500 people. And that's because that is where we are going to be working on truly improving our systems, expanding our partnerships, and diversifying the ways that we develop and deliver training so that we're able to reach the growing number of folks that we're aiming to each year. Um, one example of what that could look like and will look like from our approach is developing and deploying a global train the trainer model. So that model looks at partnering with educational institutions, workforce development agencies, and industry organizations to build their internal <coughs> training capacity so that they can be training their local audience respectively, and that allows us to be able to scale while also being sustainable in our own organizational growth. Right. Thank you for sharing this with us today. I'd like to wrap up, um, and this is, um, you know, um, are you anxious about achieving these goals? We're in a tough time right now. We're dealing with the COVID crisis. And now we're looking forward, uh, looking ahead to, to combating climate change. Are you still optimistic about this? Uh, do you feel like the demand and the interest is going to be there? That's a great question. I'll be really transparent. I'm, we're definitely excited about this. We believe in it. And we look at everything that is all the conversations around COVID. For example, a big theme within these town halls have been that solar is going to rebound and have more opportunity than before even potentially. So that's really hopeful. And we believe, and when we're on the other side of this pandemic, we're really gonna need to respond and make up for lost time and to create new job opportunities for people. So in that perspective, we're really excited. 
-hmm. when I think about getting in front of folks and talking about this today, I am quite anxious because it's scary to share really bold goals in a time of uncertainty. Yeah. And we're really not sure how the world's going to change. Yeah. Marla, we got a question um, from Henry in the audience, and he says, if Charlie's assertion is that our 2050 goals must be compressed to a 2030 goal, what are the biggest opportunities to advance renewable penetration? I can answer that from the perspective of drugs. And when I look at our plan as a one singular organization, being able to train on the trajectory that we're looking at right now, at least for the five-year goal, is probably the max we can do to be able to get our systems where they need to be. And then when we get to that five-year plan, we'll reevaluate and say, are, is our 10-year goal, so our 2030 goal, bold enough? Are we doing what we need to do? Right. And at that time, we may reassess and make it bigger, do whatever we need to do and can do within our systems to make it happen. And when I think about taking it out of the context of SEI, it gets back to that idea that we can't do this alone. Seeing some other training organizations and institutions that are coming in and really working on closing this gap for right. skilled workers, that's what we're gonna need to do. Okay. And I would love to hear more about how we can do that and be a part of that conversation. Great. There's another uh, question from Henry in the chat. So maybe after we hop off with you, you can answer that. It's about what are the other training sources that are out there? But Marla, thank you so much for coming today. I think it's incredible what you all are undertaking. Um, we wish you the best of luck and the best of, uh, of SEI. Thanks. I appreciate it. Yeah. So if people want to learn more about SEI, um, you can go to, to their website, solarenergy.org, to find out more. Thanks, Marla, for coming on. Um, so for our last speaker, I'd like to bring on Hirsch Wilson and Boaz as well, who might want to pick Hirsch's brain a little bit. Um, thanks for coming on the program today, Hirsch. Thank you. for. I'm glad to be here. Yeah. Happy Earth Day. So you've worked with executives, leadership teams, um, big companies, small ones. What skills um, do you try to build or lessons do you try to share to help get folks through tough times? And that's kind of the theme for our, our final segment here is uh, thriving in tough times. So what would you tell them about our current situation and, and how to thrive in tough times? I think um, the, the first thing is, is to just step back and realize that this is new territory. This is something we've never seen before. And uh, I think the other two speakers mentioned it, that we're really, uh, the kind of themes are uncertainty and ambiguity. Uh, my friend, Amy Edmondson, who's a Harvard professor, talks about the VUCA, V-U-C-A, which stands for um, volatility, uh, uncertainty, um, um, chaos, and ambiguity. And that's kind of what we're facing right now. And it, it takes different leadership skills to guide an organization through that. But it's, it's kind of acknowledging that that's where we are. It's really important. Um, what, role is, what role does optimism play for us right now? You talked uh, quite a bit about that at your presentation at the Leadership Summit. Um, do you think it's important <clears throat> to be optimistic right now? Yeah, and I'll get into that a little bit with resilience. But... Okay. Um, one of my favorite stories is about Ernest Shackleton, who in 1914 led this expedition to cross Antarctica. 
And uh, what happened was, um, you know, 28 men, uh, their ship was caught in the ice and eventually sunk. And they spent almost two and a half years on the ice floes and then uh, in small lifeboats before they, uh, they managed to make it back to civilization. So from 1914 to late 1960. And um, what, what, I mean, it, it's, it's hard to imagine how, how um, difficult and strange that voyage was. But at the end of it, uh, Shackleton talked about the, one of the things that got them through that kept them together and kept them going as a crew. Uh, and he said that uh, optimism is moral courage. And the ability to be optimistic, the ability to say, we can get through this together, was really what held them together. So I think that has lots of lessons for where we are today and as leaders, that it's that ability to have that deep optimism that we can get through this. And uh, uh, that, that really makes a difference, especially as leaders, because people look to us. They look to us for truth. And, and I think Boaz mentioned before for that kind of uh, acceptance of the, of the brutal reality that things have changed, but then for that ability to kind of be optimistic that we can get through this. And that is really kind of core part of being a leader today. Yeah. And I want to talk a little bit about that historical piece too, looking back and, and some of those lessons. But let's talk about leadership in, during crisis. Uh, governors like Andrew Cuomo and others have come to the fore in recent weeks as embodying certain attributes of leadership. How would you frame out their leadership style right now? And, and how do you think they're viewing this crisis? Right. I think Andrew Cuomo has been kind of our must watch every morning. Um, and it is because he does two things, uh, three things, really. I think, first of all, he's absolutely honest. He tells the truth. Uh, he's willing to admit when he's wrong. Um, but he really starts from, here are the facts, here are the facts, here are the facts. Secondly, he gives us kind of a view of the future. He says, here's what it's going to be like when we get through this. Um, and I think that's really important. So he has his eye on the present and being honest about the present. And then he keeps us looking forward to what it's going to be like after we get through this. And third, I think he's vulnerable. He talks about his family, how he's, he's feeling, he talks about his brother, which is, of course, just a great comedy. <laughs> but he talks about how close he's gotten to his family. So I think those three things, being brutally honest, um, giving us a look at what the future is going to uh, be like and being vulnerable are really the three things that I've learned from, from him, him as a leader. Yeah. Um, let's talk a little bit about your volunteer firefighter experience. Um, you wrote a book about this as well. Um, it's called Firefighter Zen, a, a, a field guide to thriving in tough times. Can you talk a little bit about that book and how that shaped your perspective on what's important in life uh, and maybe what's not important? Yeah, absolutely. So I think being a firefighter has, has uh, for 30 years has really changed my perspective on, on life. Uh, and I think the one thing, the three things I, I, I've learned are one, that um, all, we, all we are promised and all we can, can, can guarantee is today that um, uh, whether it's on a global scale or personal, there's, uh, there's stuff happens, um, tragedy is always out there. Uh, and we have to we have to learn to accept that all we can all we really have is today. Um, uh, secondly, that um, that life is fragile, and it always has been fragile, and and nothing has changed. Uh, you can look back in history, or you can look at now, but life is really fragile. And I think third, that the way we find 
we try to find true joy is kind of accepting the fact that, uh, you know, that we're going to die, that are, that, and this is always kind of dark, but it's the truth. Um, that we're going to die, that everybody we love, we love are, are going to die. And that's just life. That's how life works. Um, and we can, and in order to find true joy, we need to accept those facts and to accept the fact that it's very tenuous here. And being a firefighter really teaches that because every time there's a 911 call, we know somebody, some stuff has happened, somebody's been affected. And then, and then finally that the way we find true joy is by shifting from thinking about me and being obsessed by me, but really being in service to others. That is the key thing that being a firefighter has taught me that if that, that joy is starts by stopping self-obsessed and really helping and serving others. Yeah. And I want to look, talk a little bit about that uh, looking outward piece at the end, but let's talk a little bit about resilience. Um, sure. Resilience is a key factor in leadership. I think as you see it, um, can you flesh that out for us? Uh, what's that, what's that personal resilience piece look like and why is that important right now? Yeah. Well, think about resilience as its ability to bounce back from difficult times. Uh, it's the ability to adapt well uh, in, in when there's tragedy or crisis. And, and boy, if you, if you can think of something that we need right now, it's resilience. So I, I found this paper by Margaret Hagelin and Nicole Cooper. And the paper was basically written for firefighters and first responders on how to be prepared for stress, how to, how to avoid some of the negative consequences of, of post-traumatic stress disorder and what we call um, uh, acute, acute anxiety. Um, mm -hmm. And there are six factors, which I thought I found were really fascinating and that we can all, there are practices that we can all uh, start using. And the first one was to have a, a practice to reduce stress, something in your own life that can help you reduce stress. It can be something like yoga. It can be meditation. It can be, uh, it can be going out on walks. Um, and, but something that's a practice that you use every day or when you need it to kind of uh, uh, address stress. Yeah. Um, the next one was um, very simple. It's having a regular exercise program. We're not, we're not kind of this uh, body-mind dichotomy. We're, we're a physical being. And to the extent that we can get exercise every day on a regular basis really improves our ability to be resilient. It doesn't mean working out at the gym every day, but it can be a simple thing as going for a walk every day. But getting out, being physical, really helps us uh, increase our resilience. Um, the next one was optimism and humor. Highly resilient people tend to be optimistic. They tend to see, they tend not to get uh, caught in kind of a nihilistic point of view, but they're, they're optimistic about the future. They see problems as short-term rather than permanent. Um, and, uh, you know, whereas pessimistic people tend to see problems as enduring and will never end. And they also use humor. Uh, resilient people see, are able to find humor in dark situations. And of course, as a firefighter, we're known for having a very dark sense of humor, but that keeps us together. It keeps, it helps us keep our perspective. So being able to see humor in situations is really important. Um, the next one, which, which I think you at, 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 at Baywell have really tried to create, is community. Um, resilient people tend to be belongers. They tend to belong to community. The idea of the Lone Ranger, the idea of the, of the, the individual uh, out there by him or herself uh, doing it themselves really is a myth. The Lone Ranger was a myth. Uh, 
It's literature, but it's not reality. And if you think about all the great things that we've done um, in, since the beginning of time, it's always been a community. It's always been a group of people working together. And that is another uh, key thing. So I think one of the, my strong recommendations now is that if you don't belong to communities, this is the time to belong to a community, whether it's secular, whether it's spiritual, but belonging to a community is really important. Um, the next thing is that resilient people have a, have a sense of purpose. They, they tend to serve something, a cause higher than themselves. Um, whether that is in their business, whether, whether they, they see the, the contextualize their business as serving others, um, or whether they're, you know, they, they quit their job and find something that's really meaningful, or they find meaningful stuff to do spiritually or secularly, secularly uh, um, to, to really have something that gives them higher meaning. Mm -hmm. um, finally, they're, they, they have what we call cognitive flexibility. Their, their, their ability to, to see problems and understand the, the world differently than other people um, is really important. So my favorite example of this now is that um, we can either feel trapped in our homes or we can feel safe in our homes. And that's just a, a way of changing our thinking in terms of adapting to the situation. So that ability to think differently about any kind of situation is really important to being resilient. So those are kind of the factors of highly resilient people. Great. So we're running out of time, um, but I want to try to wrap up here. Um, we're on Earth Day, and most of us want to think about creating a better future uh, for our environment, for the planet, uh, for our families, for future generations. And I think it's in that spirit of that other-centeredness piece that you were talking about before. Um, and you've talked about how we can help achieve that goal by being more resilient as people and bringing community together. So along that note, um, I'd like to ask you to do a, that quick exercise that you did with us at the Business Leadership Summit. Um, and I'd like to ask people at home to do it as well. Um, so I warned Hirsch ahead of time that we'd be doing this. So I encourage you at home to all grab a pen and paper uh, and follow Hirsch's lead. Uh, and when Hirsch is done, he's going he's gonna to end with his mantra. So Hirsch, would you please walk us through that sure. exercise? Sure. So um, the exercise is simple. It's, uh, it is um, what kind of legacy do we want to leave? As a leader, uh, as an individual, um, I want you to step back, go to 10,000 feet and ask the question, what is the legacy we want to leave um, um, in the short time we have left? Um, and I think of it this way. So uh, if you were a third party writing about yourself, what, what, what would you say about yourself? What would you say that... Um, uh, you want to leave as your legacy. And it can just be um, uh, a paragraph or so, a couple of sentences, but how do you want to be remembered? And especially the, during this time, and this is the defining moment for leaders. How we lead now really is going to define our legacy. So the exercise is simple, uh, you know, write from a th uh, somebody else writing about you. Um, what, how would you like to be uh, remembered? Where does the legacy you want to leave? So just take a couple of minutes to do that and then we can come back. Yeah, I think we'll let people we'll let people ponder that as we go. But but maybe you, since we only have a minute or two left, maybe you'll wrap us up with your with your closing thought and your mantra. Sure, I think my closing thought is this: that life is inherently uncertain. Um, it always has been. It always will be. Uh, we we are not responsible. We're not in charge of the events that happen to us. Um, 
we just we can't predict them. Uh, things come out of the blue. Uh, this whole thing is is a great example of how life works. Uh, we're not in charge of the events that happen. What we are in charge of is how we tend how we choose to respond. How are we going to respond to the events in our life? And and I always think of uh, the best way to respond is is the my kind of mantra is that we need to be brave, uh, we need to be kind, and we need to be useful. So if we can think of those three things: be kind, um, be brave, and be useful as a way we want to respond to events. Uh, and and that's how I try to practice every day. And I think that's um, as 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 good an ending as uh, as any. Okay. All right. Well, thanks, Hirsch. Thanks for coming sure. on and talking with us. We really appreciate you. Thanks. All right. Thank you, Tom. Um, yeah, I just want to say um, thank you to Charlie and Marla and Hirsch for joining us today. I feel like we could spend at least an hour with each of you, and I'm going to talk to Tom offline about doing that. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I invite everybody again to... Um, Think about what beliefs are we ready to let go of as individuals, organizations, and society. And I think that dovetails really nicely with um, Hirsch's comments. And, um, and I'm really curious to learn more about disaggregation as a pathway to resiliency. So Charlie, we'll take that up um, uh, soon, I hope. Um, thanks everybody for joining. Happy Earth Day, and we'll see you next week.